0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, the role of emotion in getting people to donate their blood on a regular basis. Deep brain stimulation for depression? Could an electrode work when medications fail? And we'll hear from someone who has an electrode in his brain. But we're going to start with the controversy that's been brewing for a while, but broke in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age last week. It's about melanoma, the deadliest form of skin cancer, the one you don't want to miss because when it's diagnosed late, it may have already spread. The allegation in this story last week was that around the retraction of two papers written by a Melbourne-based GP who specialises in skin cancer and has been teaching his fellow GPs that the way melanoma experts diagnose melanoma spread doesn't have the touted benefits, could do harm, and that ultrasound of the lymph nodes is the way to go. The retracted papers were in the Australian Journal of General Practice. The technique in question is called sentinel node biopsy. It's commonly used in breast cancer, where the lymph node in the groin or the armpit, which first receives the drainage from the leg or arm, is biopsied to see if there are melanoma cells in it. If there aren't, then it's unlikely there has been spread. Professor John Thompson is a leading melanoma surgeon and researcher and was one of the pioneers of sentinel node biopsy in melanoma. Welcome to The Health Report, John.
2: Pleasure to be here,
1: Norman. Does staging, in other words, finding out how far the melanoma has spread using sentinel node biopsy
2: make a difference? Absolutely, and that, that's the crux of the question, really. It's not just an academic exercise. This tells us whether there has been spread of melanoma to the lymph nodes, and if there has been, uh, then the treatment is very different. And these days, uh, we have available adjuvant drug therapy that is making a big difference to the outcome of patients survival
1: these are the new immunotherapy drugs the new
2: immunotherapy drugs
1: we'll come back to that later we've got some time i was looking up some papers on this when i saw the, the article and looking at what's called statistically the effect size of on survival of sentinel node biopsy and some of the papers were saying it's not huge i mean are not papers by the person that sure. the, the city morning herald was covering How much of a difference does it make?
2: It's difficult to tell because it's very hard to assess in a prospective trial. There was a very large trial, the first trial that was ever done in sentinel node biopsy, called the first multi center selective lymphadenectomy trial. And the patients who were sentinel node positive, who had melanoma in their sentinel nodes, who had surgery and their sentinel node removed, did much, much better than the patients who subsequently became apparent with melanoma in their lymph nodes but of course they weren't a pre-randomized group so you can't statistically say and there was a huge benefit in them but not statistically proven.
1: And if you didn't do a sentinel node biopsy how would you know how would you stage the melanoma or how did you how did you do how did they do it before that
2: came well they weren't staged you know the melanoma was widely excised and the lymph nodes were simply observed and about 20 percent of patients would ultimately develop disease in their regional lymph nodes and then you would know that they had advanced disease. These papers that were retracted, they made a couple of allegations. One is that there were no valid
1: guidelines, I think, on uh, on melanoma. And the second was that ultrasound was just as good, or words to those effect. Sure. Uh, that you would ultrasound the lymph nodes, and it's presumably if they were bulky and
2: solid, then that, that was a warning sign. Well, to deal with the first matter first, um, Cancer Council Australia has a very uh, well-organised set of melanoma management guidelines. Uh, evidence-based. It's all there on the Cancer Council website for anyone to look at with the levels of evidence for every statement and recommendation that's made. In terms of uh, assessing lymph nodes with ultrasound... Um, Where does that
1: idea come from? Has been, did th- had this particular doctor done research in this area? Or?
2: Uh, I don't believe so. Uh, as far as I'm aware, he's not published any Material on this. He does quote the work of others. Right. And has there been much work? Not a lot. But there was a a particular uh, dermatologist in Germany, a lady called Christiane Voigt, sadly now deceased at a very early age, who um, was undoubtedly an expert ultrasonographer. And she uh, claimed to have ways of detecting melanoma in lymph nodes with great confidence. Uh, no one else has really been able to reproduce that in any sort of prospective study. Now you've done a comparison with a t- another team of researchers. We have. Um, we, we recently published an article looking at a prospective multi-centred trial in which all patients were assessed, had their nodes assessed with ultrasound and then had As a central node biopsy. So we were able to tell how accurate it was and uh, overall uh, 8% of uh, patients who had disease in their central nodes were detected by ultrasound. So, basically, ultrasound has no no
1: value whatsoever and potentially dangerous because you would miss it.
2: Well, they all fortunately went on to have a central node biopsy, but But, without that that, it would be be the dangerous
1: alternative. Um, Do you think much damage has been done by these papers?
2: Uh, Yes, I think so, because, you know, the general practitioners in training regard these as... uh, You know, fodder material for for obtaining their fellowship of the college. Uh, This is meant to be educational material, and to suggest that there are no valid guidelines is is quite harmful
1: so let's take us through the diagnostic process first of all you know you've got you've got a, a mark on your skin yeah w- when does it start to worry you should it start to worry you that it's a
2: melanoma yeah well a suspicious pigmented skin lesion um, if it changes in size changes in shape changes in color begins to itch or bleed uh, then it needs to be assessed by a doctor and general practitioners are very expert these days in recognizing uh, lesions that might need further assessment and are encouraged, according to the guidelines, to do an excision biopsy, just with a small margin, so that the lesion can be assessed by a pathologist. So it's okay for a GP or a skin cancer clinic to do that? Absolutely. Now, w- there is a technique
1: where you, you look at the, the melanoma more closely, um, which is called dermoscopy, and it takes a bit of training to do that. How important is it that GPs have that technique or should they just be biopsying on suspicion? Um,
2: I think it's very useful if they have some training in dermoscopy. Uh, it certainly helps exclude benign lesions and avoid unnecessary biopsies. Uh, and it doesn't require a great amount of training to, to find the technique helpful in, in differentiating benign from malignant so skin when, lesions. So when is a sentinel node biopsy then indicated? When you have the pathology back after the initial excision biopsy, uh, you then can assess the thickness of the melanoma and if it's more than a millimeter in thickness then we know that there's uh, at least a 10% chance uh, increasing as thickness increases of having disease in a central node and a central node biopsy is recommended both in Australian national guidelines and international guidelines and that's when a referral is called for correct and then you might have a more wider a wider excision of the actual And then cleanup. yes that has to be done at the same time if you do the wide excision first then the central node biopsy procedure becomes inaccurate. John, thank you very much for joining us. Great pleasure, Norman.
1: John Thompson is Emeritus Professor of Melanoma and Surgical Oncology at the University of Sydney and a former Executive Director of the Melanoma Institute Australia. You're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Deep brain stimulation is just what it sounds like. Electrodes are placed deep inside the brain to treat problems with movement like Parkinson's disease and more recently to try to help people with what's called treatment-resistant depression. But deep brain stimulation for depression while initially holding out a lot of hope has been disappointing. Susanna Tai is trying to find out why and then develop better ways of using the technique. Susanna is a senior research fellow at the Queensland Brain Institute.
3: Deep brain stimulation is a form of neuromodulation in which electrodes are implanted into specific nodes within the brain and the electrode is activated continuously and so it's believed to function like a pacemaker for the brain.
1: And it's been going for a while now, but they put it in parts of the brain which might help your movement if you've got Parkinson's disease, for example.
3: That's right. So it's best used for movement disorders currently. It's very well established to be effective as a therapeutic treatment for patients who no longer respond to drug therapies. And what we know that it does in uh, movement disorders is that it's modulating aberrant cellular activity So when you the say brain,
1: modulating, you mean changing?
3: Changing, overriding essentially. They will fire directly and continuously in line with the tremor itself.
1: You get this sort of tremor which gets worse when you actually try and go for something. That's right. And that's in addition to the rigidity that you get with Parkinson's disease and stiffness.
3: That's right. So deep brain stimulation is able to target different aspects of the illness itself and tremor is particularly responsive to the stimulation. We believe that that is because it's essentially silencing the activity in the brain that's causing that particular movement.
1: How do you know which part of the brain to hit and how does it affect the whole brain if indeed it does?
3: So we know that in certain parts of the brain there is this aberrant activity. And so the hypothesis has been to go in and target that aberrant activity and to primarily have the outcome of improving the motor dysfunction.
1: Motor being movement.
3: That's right. There are a number of aspects of the illness that don't respond to DBS. And so uh, currently there's a lot of investigation into what DBS is doing and if it can be improved to Affect things like the mood that can also be dysfunctional in Parkinson's as well as the cognitive dysfunction.
1: And you've been looking at depression.
3: That's right, to try to understand how deep brain stimulation can be applied to psychiatric disorders that don't respond effectively to intervention.
1: So, is this like an electrical version of deep brain surgery? lobotomy
3: it's not so much a (laughs) a version of the lobotomy but that's the obvious first question deep brain stimulation is very much a targeted form of therapy it's considered to be relatively less invasive than going in and lesioning which was where the field was at prior to using deep brain stimulation
1: but it hasn't worked that well in depression
3: that's right so in depression the recent clinical trials have essentially failed And is
1: that because it's a generalised problem of much more than just one spot in the brain?
3: That's exactly right. And
1: these are people who are not responding well to medications?
3: That's right. So deep brain stimulation for depression has been experimental and a number of groups were able to demonstrate that it was an effective procedure and that patients that did not respond to any other available treatment were able to receive sustained benefit and recover from their depression, which had been incredibly disabling. Now, as DBS has been rolled out across multiple sites, you know a lot of questions are being asked as to why it failed at that particular level. So and what you're saying
1: here is that it helped some people but not all.
3: That's right. But
1: you couldn't predict who it was going to help.
3: That's right. And now, as the research has continued to evolve, we know who's more likely to respond, the types of depressive symptoms that uh, make somebody a good candidate for DBS for depression, as well as the particular neural networks to target. What's Ray. the
1: process that you get put in a functional MRI scanner That's individually right. and you see what's going wrong in the brain of... A particular individual and that's what you go for? That's right. I mean presumably how you activate the electrode and the sort of frequency which you stimulate and whether you do it all day or you do it at night, all these things can affect it. It's not just sticking in an electrode and attaching it to the mains power supply.
3: That's right. I think that's currently where we stand as a field in trying to better understand how to optimise this and how do we optimise it for different illnesses. So it really has evolved out of the field of movement disorders where this continuous high frequency stimulation was effective in helping patients to move more effectively. But there is an
1: element of burnout, isn't there? That you've got to keep adjusting it and you get used to the stimulus and it's not necessarily lasting a long time.
3: That's right. And what we now know is that the brain is adapting. And so for psychiatric disorders, we need to look at how to optimise that adaptation in particular, because that is what is inducing the recovery. It doesn't happen acutely as it does with movement disorders. It it takes months to to years for patients to really recover. So what's your
1: research illuminating here that might improve treatment?
3: So we're looking at different types of stimulation parameters where you're mimicking more of the natural firing that happens in the brain. And we're also looking at the networks that are activated and how we can augment those changes, those long-term adaptive changes.
1: And you're trying to see how it might work with medications rather than... That's
3: right. As we better understand the molecular mechanisms that are changing the brain or remodeling the brain, there is good potential for us to actually augment those I think there's a lot of potential for novel treatments that promote neurotrophic responses or nerve growth. nerve growth. Well, that's and exercise, isn't it? That's right, yes. And antidepressants, irrespective of the specific target or pharmacological target of the drug. The overriding mechanism that is thought to result in the the therapeutic effect of all antidepressants is the promotion of plasticity and repairing the brain.
1: You'd have to be pretty bad to let a neurosurgeon into your brain, even if it is an electrode that could Mm -hmm. be removed.
3: Absolutely. And so these patients and their families are desperate for help. They're really seeking an opportunity to regain their their life. It also needs to be said, I think, that it's not just the act of doing the deep brain stimulation. There's a whole team of clinicians that work together to help the patients It requires psychiatrists to really do rehabilitative psychotherapy. So it's more than
1: just throwing the switch. Absolutely. Dr Susanna Tai is a senior research fellow at the Queensland Brain Institute. As Susanna mentioned, deep brain stimulation has been used for a number of years to treat Parkinson's disease. But for it to be most effective, the person getting the implant has to be awake during the surgery. That's to help the surgeons tweak the settings on the device and make sure it's doing what it's supposed to. In 2017, primary school principal Todd Murphitt learnt he had early-onset Parkinson's disease. He was only 35. At first, he managed with medications and was expecting about a decade of relative simple, symptom-free life before the next stage came on. But two years later, in May this year, he found himself in the operating theatre. Todd speaking here to The Health Report's producer, James Bullen.
4: The first indicator that something wasn't right was probably my lack of balance. But the very first thing that I noticed that was significant enough to go to the doctor was a tremor in my hand, which just seemed quite unusual. The neurologist called out my name and I stood up and he asked me to sit back down. That was a bit of a bizarre sort of response, I thought at the time, but eventually he got me into the consulting room and we went through a series of tests. And from that, the neurologist was able to say that I had Parkinson's disease. So I went in there walking with no expectation of anything and then left with the doctor basically saying as soon as I stood up out of my chair that he was sure that I had Parkinson's disease. And what were you thinking and feeling at at that point? Yeah, so you can imagine it was a fair shock. Like I was still going full tilt at work and it was just so far from left field. You know, I basically cried most of the drive home. Once I'd spoken... A little bit more with my neurologist so i figured okay well i can get by we just take a tablet and things will be fine for years as it turned out two years down the track i was going under the knife it got to a point where i was taking around about 20 tablets a day just to get through and the side effect of that were really sharp ups and downs that led us to the talks of the deep brain stimulation so i had to go and i was taken off all my medication It felt like i was stuck in the mud so when i was walking i just couldn't actually get my feet off the ground and i was just consistently very very slow so from that test we knew that having electricity pumped into into my subthalamic nucleus in my brain would help the next step was to go through psychiatry and a neuropsychologist so bizarrely enough on the day of the surgery i didn't really have much fear Because the process was that you would be awake during the surgery while they were operating on your brain and implanting this device. Yeah. The thought of being awake during any surgery, I think, is a fairly harrowing one, but it was a little bit desperate for change. I couldn't see what was going on back there. I could definitely hear and feel the drilling and that sort of thing, but receptors in your brain, you don't have those nerves. Would you be able to explain what is it that the device is doing? So I've got two leads, one in the left side of my brain, one in the right side. They're poked down, right down almost to your brain stem and from those leads are wires that run down the side of my neck into a battery implanted in my chest. So the battery which i can control with a remote i can increase or decrease the amount of electricity that the lead lets off into in my case the subthalamic nucleus and as a result i've been able to cut back 90 percent of my medications so from about 20 tablets down to two the biggest difference was actually in surgery so as soon as the first lead went in my arm relaxed i was just feeling so much euphoria really because all of a sudden i had a body again that resembled what the human body is supposed to do and then it's a real slide back to the real world i suppose so one of the main things that i've got to be aware of and my family have to be aware of is just mental health the risk of depression and suicide around deep brain stimulation is a real risk So just that constant monitoring. I go back and see my psychiatrist regularly. How do things compare for you now compared to those months before getting the deep brain stimulation? I felt like I was kind of spiraling out of control. I'd given up my decision-making roles at work because I didn't feel confident enough. So the difference with the electricity is it's constant, which means those highs and lows have gone, which is amazing. And on top of that, you know, I've got an appetite again, I can eat. Not being in pain, I mean, and that's one of the things that I'm finding most difficult now is I'm starting to get that pain back. So I've got to balance and work with my neurologist as to tweaking the electricity or modifying the medication in order to try and minimise that pain. And then the other part is now I feel like I've got a second chance. If I can aim for 10 years of really high quality life with my kids, that's such a blessing for me.
1: Primary school principal Todd Murphitt and he's written a book about his experience with deep brain stimulation, and we'll have details on the Health Reports website. Donating blood takes less than an hour, and just a single donation can save up to three lives. But around 40% of us don't get back in the chair after our first blood donation. Sometimes that's because of a reaction, feeling dizzy or faint during the procedure. But it's also about the emotions tied up in the act of donating. Fear, joy and pride all play a role. Reporter Claire Watson went in search of answers when she anxiously rolled up her sleeves at the clinic.
0: I'm at the Wollongong Donor Centre and I'm about to give blood. I'm pretty nervous.
4: So we'll give this area a bit (laughs) of a...
0: You can feel my heart racing.
4: <laughs> Look, do you yeah. know what? It's natural to be nervous.
0: This is the first time I've donated blood in eight years. I'm hoping today it will be OK. I'm OK with the needle. I just hope it goes
5: well. Yeah. No, it should go fine. You've got a fantastic vein. What I want you to
4: do is do a couple of big squeezes.
0: The last time I donated blood, eight years
6: ago, it didn't go so well. I felt nauseous, dizzy, and I fainted in the chair. It sounds like you had what we call a vasovagal reaction. Some donors can experience this while they're giving blood. Amanda Tyson is a senior research assistant at the Australian Red Cross Blood Service. Some donors feel a bit dizzy or lightheaded. Some donors can feel a bit nauseous. In my research, I really try to minimise the impact that these reactions have on the donor.
0: Amanda works on the Australian Red Cross Blood Service's research and development. She's been studying trends in donor behaviour after people experience a minor complication while donating blood to find out how many come back, how long it
6: takes them and who is more likely to return. Most of them actually felt quite fine to come back again and some of the reasons were that they felt really looked after by the staff while they were there. However, we do know that some donors might be a bit more afraid of coming back because they're worried that they'll have another reaction. These reactions are uncommon. Just 2% of donors actually have any kind of reaction while donating blood. The majority of donors who do come back have a great next donation. About four out of five plasma donors and three out of four whole blood donors tend to have a great next donation.
0: There are many reasons why someone doesn't go back to donate blood, and emotions play a big role.
5: There's been lots of work done on stress and anxiety as people approach their first donation and how people feel in the waiting room while they're waiting to go into the phlebotomy chair. They can be quite anxious or nervous about trying something new.
0: Professor Barbara Massa is from the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland. She's also the chair of the Australian Red Cross
5: Blood Services donor research group. More recently, there's been sort of a little change in perspective and we've started to look at the positive emotions that people also simultaneously experience. So obviously, we don't just feel negative emotions in isolation. There's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And so we've started to explore the role that positive emotions can play when people are actually donating blood. So you have this interplay between perhaps a little bit of stress and anxiety, but also these immense feelings of joy and pride at actually doing something that's going to benefit so many people.
0: Working with Professor Massa is Dr Lisa Williams, a social psychologist at the University of New South Wales. Her research focuses on positive emotions like pride, which can encourage people to come back. The pair have conducted a number of studies with Australian blood donors to tease apart the different emotions people recall around their blood donation and how that can impact their future behaviour.
7: For a long time, emotion researchers believed that we remember negative experiences more so than we remember positive experiences. But the more recent data suggests that we remember what we call emotionally poignant events. It's actually that we remember events that were emotionally intense.
0: And it seems positive emotions like pride, joy and gratitude do persist and can be really strong motivators for any blood donor to return.
7: The donors who recall a more positive experience are those who are more likely to come back. That seems kind of like an intuitive finding, but we're actually the first to document that with data.
0: So that's the motivating power of a positive emotional experience. But what do we know about the traits of those who are more likely to donate again, after experiencing an uncommon yet unpleasant reaction. Here's Amanda Tyson again. Her study used data routinely collected by the blood service to follow donors for two years after they experienced an adverse event.
6: We looked at both plasma and whole blood donors and we compared whether there were any differences between these two groups. Compared to whole blood, we found that plasma donors were more likely to come back. We found in plasma donors, also donors who were more experienced, were more likely to return after experiencing any type of adverse event during their blood donations. This, this also includes some mild bruising that can happen as well. We also found that older donors were more likely to come back than younger donors, and we found that oh, negative donors were more likely to return, however this could be because We target O-negative donors more in our communications. There's a more stronger need for O-negative blood compared to other blood types. O-negative donors are in high
0: demand because their blood can be given to anyone else. Which got me thinking, maybe O-negative donors are particularly proud of that fact and their pride as a donor motivates them to return.
7: I think that's an excellent suggestion.
0: Dr Lisa Williams again.
7: A lot of people do report experiencing pride and that that does correlate with wanting to come back and donate again. But the donors who are feeling proud are also telling us that they're experiencing happiness and they're also calm. And we've
0: yet to tease apart what unique role pride plays. As for older donors, Professor Massa says that gratitude may be a factor in their decision to donate again, as chances are they know someone who has benefited from a blood
5: transfusion. It's an interesting trend that we see pretty much worldwide, that older donors do tend to come back more frequently.
0: Donating blood has just become something that they do. Regular donors have made it a habit, so there's no decision about it. The
7: critical question from a psychological angle is to understand what are the mental processes that get people to that point and then make sure that they don't slip out of that because, of course, busy lives can interrupt even the most habitual regular donor.
0: Helping new and returning donors overcome any emotional hurdles to donating blood is an important first step. To help them through the process and get back in the chair, there are strategies which donors can use to reduce their risk of a complication
6: or deploy should they start to feel anything unusual. Amanda Tyson again. During your donation procedure itself, you can use a technique that we call applied muscle tension, I wish you just cross your legs and tense your leg and abdominal muscles for five seconds and really relax for five seconds and keep doing this during your donation. This will help increase your blood pressure and this will help prevent you from feeling faint during your donation. Other strategies
0: include drinking a bottle of water when you first arrive at the donor centre and using simple distractions like chatting to a friend to take your mind off what's happening. Professor Massa says these strategies can help people gain a sense of control over the process and overcome any feelings of anxiety they may have.
5: What we find in our research is that actually just knowing about that, having those strategies to hand, actually seems to build people's confidence to to go through the donation process.
0: And when donors are more at ease, they're less likely to faint or feel dizzy.
5: So if we can work with donors to make sure that their anxiety is really uh, ameliorated, if you like, we know that they're going to have a much better experience as they process through the donor centre. And that means that they're far more likely to come back. So if you like, the emotional side of blood donation actually has a very important role to play in terms of protecting the nation's blood supply.
1: And that report on emotion in blood donation was by Claire Watson. You've been listening to The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. See you next week.